0: January 3rd, 2020, a group of 16 bishops and other leaders in the United Methodist Church from across the globe and across many points of view announced an agreement regarding the future of our denomination. Their proposal, if approved by the 2020 General Conference of the United Methodist Church, would end the nearly 50 years debate on the United Methodist Church's approaches to LGBTQA plus issues. That refers to the issues of same-sex marriage and pastors who are in the LGBTQ community, among others. Settling that debate once and for all, that's the good news. But what's the rest of the story? The United Methodist Church is heading for its biggest split since 1844, with at least one new denomination breaking away from the United Methodist Church. How we got here is something you heard about in our first episode. This time, we are talking about where we are going. What does this proposal do? How will it work? If you want to know more, we have lots more for you, right here, On the Untidy Methodist. Thanks for checking back in with the Untidy Methodist. We have this story from a variety of sources, so let me credit them up front. Parts of this come from the actual document itself, the nine page Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation that was released by the group. More information comes from the United Methodist News, UMNews.org, from press releases and other articles by the Wesleyan Covenant Association and the Reconciling Ministries Network, and from other coverage by CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Time, and Fox News. Let's first talk about how this group of 16 came together. After the somewhat chaotic 2019 Special Call General Conference of the United Methodist Church, Bishop John Yambasu from the Sierra Leone Episcopal area invited five persons from three constituencies each within the United Methodist Church, traditionalists, centrists, and progressives, to meet in Chicago, Illinois, on July 19, 2019. This meeting also included representatives from the Central Conference, our United Methodist Church from around the globe. From that meeting, a group of eight representatives from all these constituencies were selected to find and meet with a mediator to continue the talks. Their next meeting was August 16th and 17th, 2019, in Herndon, Virginia. The group went through several names of potential mediators, agreeing finally on Kenneth Feinberg. Let's talk about him for just a moment. Kenneth Feinberg is a well-known mediator who has worked on a number of high-profile projects over the years. He was the special master for the federal September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. He later administered the Hokie Spirit Memorial Fund, which was set up after the tragic shootings at Virginia Tech University. His other cases include some of the nation's biggest asbestos damaged suits, uh, a $2.5 billion settlement for women suing over a defective contraceptive device, and a class action by a quarter million Vietnam veterans and their families against the manufacturers of Agent Orange. He was one of three arbitrators who, in 1999, determined the fair market value of the Zapruder film of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. In other words, he has handled a lot of high-profile, very difficult situations and handled them well. Mr. Feinberg donated his services for this latest task out of what New York Conference Bishop Thomas Bickerton described as a deep interest in religion and the preservation of the public witness of religion. Mr. Feinberg also arranged for pro bono work by the law firm of Kirkland and Ellis in Washington, D.C. Meetings were held at the Kirkland and Ellis offices in D.C. on October 17th through 18th, on November 11th and 12th, and on December 16th and 17th, with agreement on the protocols coming on the 17th of December. Those were announced to the world on January 3rd, 2020. Bishop Bickerton said, There is a degree of heartbreak within me because I never thought we would reach this point. However, we are at this point. The differences are irreconcilable. This is inevitable. And what's remarkable about this agreement, or protocol as the group refers to it, is that for once, with all those significant differences, all sides were in agreement. This has been a very bitter, intense battle that began in 1972 without resolution. But now, there is a proposal on the table that at least has the nominal support of this ad hoc group of bishops and other leaders, one that will go before the General Conference for approval later this year. That said, there are a lot of hoops that we will be jumping through to get to that General Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota in May 2020. It's important to recognize the fact that this protocol is not yet the official policy of the United Methodist Church. The group that came together was not an official committee of the church. Instead, it was an ad hoc group of leaders who recognized that their word would not be final and there are several things that must happen between now and May to even talk about this proposal. You see, the deadline for petitions to the General Conference of 2020 has already passed. There is a provision, though, that special called annual conferences can meet between now and May to present this protocol or other petitions as a proposal to the General Conference, and there's already work underway to make that happen. Then there is a matter of the Constitution. You may not know this, and I'm fairly sure most United Methodists are unaware of the fact, but the United Methodist Church has a constitution. Proposals to the General Conference may be passed and still invalidated by our version of the Supreme Court known as the Judicial Council. There are parts of this protocol that will need to be reviewed prior to General Conference in order to be confident that whatever is approved will stand. And finally, there is always the risk of amendments that could completely change this agreement. Uh, The representatives have agreed that this is an unseverable agreement. In other words, it all passes or nothing goes through, but that doesn't stop delegates who are not a part of these discussions to throw some different ideas into the process. Keep in mind that there were over 800 delegates to the 2019 General Conference. Now, in order to avoid this, uh, the various signatories of this protocol will be working diligently with their constituencies between now and May to try to prevent that from happening. Finally, even if the protocol is approved without amendment, the changes will not be immediate. We'll talk about that in a moment, but for now, let's just note that this protocol would trigger a process that would take years to fully implement. All of this is to say that no one should be making big choices as to what they will do right now. Everything we are discussing on this podcast is just a proposal right now. Nothing is official yet. But, The fact that so many groups that have fought for years are now in agreement means we need to pay close attention to the protocols that are up for review. Let's get to them now. And just before we start, a word I'm going to be throwing around a lot of terminology that relates to the structure and organization of the present-day United Methodist Church. For more on those terms, please check Episode 1 of The Untidy Methodist. Now let's get to the Articles. Article 1 basically states the support of everyone from all sides for this agreement and that they will do all they can to make it happen. Article 2 defines a few of the terms, so we're going to skip past those and go to Article 3, the process and timeline for implementation of the protocol. We'll summarize here. Any new Methodist denominations that want to be a part of this process must register with the Secretary of the Council of Bishops by May 15, 2021. It's expected that at least one new Methodist denomination will come out of the present Wesleyan Covenant Association. It's important to remember here that these new denominations will be Methodist, but will no longer be considered part of the United Methodist Church. We'll talk more about that as we go along. The rest of Article 3 talks about how individual conferences and churches can choose their direction under this protocol. We'll start with the central conferences, those outside the United States they can move to a new Methodist denomination with a two-thirds vote. That vote has to be taken before December 31, 2021. Now, given past stands taken by delegates from outside the United States, it would not be surprising to see at least some parts of the central conferences go with the new traditionalist Methodist denominations. Any other annual conference can choose to affiliate with one of the new Methodist denominations as well. They have to do so by July 1, 2021, and it takes a minimum of 57% of the votes to change denominations. If that vote fails, or they decide not to hold a vote, they stay with the post-separation United Methodist Church. This could be a mixed bag, though the general expectation is that many or most conferences would stay with the United Methodist Church. Obviously, that remains to be seen. Now, if a local church disagrees with the choice of their annual conference, that individual church can also choose to hold a vote. In this case, the local church council can set the threshold for the vote, either by simple majority or requiring a two-thirds majority. That vote has to be held no more than 60 days after the church council requests the vote, and it must be at an official church council meeting in consultation with their district superintendent. The deadline for this stage of voting goes much further to December 31st, 2024, Now, this is where a lot of change can be expected, but there's no way to measure that until the annual conferences have made their decisions. What's not addressed here, mainly because it simply can't be addressed here, is what individual church members will decide as all of this happens. Membership and attendance have already been impacted by this debate. If this protocol is approved, then how each local church approaches the debate will make a big difference in how the Methodist movement moves forward as a whole. Now, that's the structural issues for separation, but there are a lot of other issues to consider, and a lot of those were a big part of this decades long debate. One big issue surrounds the fact that a local United Methodist Church does not own their church building. The property actually belongs to the annual conference. That presented a major stumbling block to separation. You might be able to leave the church, but the church, or at least the annual conference, would still own the facilities. This article addresses the property issues along with other financial considerations. So let's talk. Article 4, the financial agreement terms of this protocol. Under this agreement, a church that's leaving would keep both its assets and liabilities. In other words, they could take the church building with them. The annual conference would not exercise its trust clause. Uh, The exiting church would maintain its obligations to the larger church, read here as connectional responsibilities, until the day it leaves. After leaving, the only thing a local church may owe would be repayment of any loans they had received from the United Methodist Church. An additional note here if a conference leaves, they take their assets along with them as well. There's more, and it's interesting. The post separation United Methodist Church would give $25 million to the traditionalist Methodist denomination that forms as part of this. If you want to read this as $25 million going to the Wesleyan Covenant Association and the denomination they would form, I wouldn't argue with you, but they may not receive that full $25 million, as we'll talk about in just a moment. There is an additional $2 million to be held in escrow for other new Methodist denominations as well. One of the other concerns relates to the support the church would give moving forward to ministries for marginalized communities. There are some parts of our worldwide church ministries that could be seriously underfunded, without a continued commitment by all people who call themselves Methodist. This also recognizes, as the agreement states, quote, The historical role of the Methodist movement in systems of systematic racial violence, exploitation, and discrimination. Now, this agreement would set aside $39 million to strengthen ministries by and for Asian, Black, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, and Pacific Islander communities, uh, to encourage the full participation of historically marginalized communities in the governance and decision-making of the church, and ensure that the vital work of training the next generation of leaders by Africa University will be maintained, end quote. $13 million of that $39 million would come from the post-separation traditional Methodist denomination. If this new traditionalist Methodist denomination chooses simply to forgo that part of the funds they would get from the post-separation United Methodist Church— they would still be $12 million ahead. In other words, if the traditional Methodist denomination formed by the Wesleyan Covenant Association chooses to not take that $13 million, they'd still get $12 million from the United Methodist Church after separation. My guess is they would take that deal, particularly since the president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association is one of the signatories to this agreement. Now, after that, we come to pensions for pastors and their spouses. There is an organization called Westpath, which administers retirement, investment, and healthcare funding for pastors and their families. Future funding for pensions could be significantly affected by the number of churches that may or may not leave the United Methodist Church. This agreement would allow pastors of churches that leave the United Methodist Church to continue to participate in the program. Unfunded pension pension liabilities for separating churches would be addressed by proposals to the General Conference that are supported by all sides. In an earlier section of this article, uh, it noted that Westpath would be able to place a lien on the property of any church or denomination that closes or ceases to exist in order to continue to fund this program. I'm glad to see this. Pastors are not paid nearly enough during their active ministry, and their pensions upon retirement should not be swept away because of this agreement. Ending this article is an agreement that there would be some effort to reach out between Methodist denominations in hopes of representation from all groups in boards and agencies and mission activities, and in other ways remain at least loosely connected as Methodists. Next, we have Article 5, which basically places a moratorium on actions against LGBTQ pastors or same-sex weddings until all of this is settled. That means from January 1st of this year, the start of the traditional plan that was approved last year, to the first general conference of the post-separation United Methodist Church, whenever that would be, there would be a moratorium on actions against pastors who are gay or who perform same-sex weddings. It also puts a hold on most church closings until the conclusion of this year's General Conference to keep there from being a rush for the exit doors. The last article, Article 6, comes back to the challenges that must be met before this could be approved by the General Conference. To get this fully in place, we need to first settle the constitutionality of any legislation that puts this into place. That's with the Judicial Council. Secondly, we need to get a report from the General Council on Finance and Administration on the financial impacts of this agreement. That's something that's required for the General Conference to consider as well. And most importantly, we need to get it on the agenda. Remember that the regular deadline is already passed for petitions to the 2020 General Conference. Then in Article 6, the group agreed that the General Conference should provide meeting space after the 2020 General Conference for those who wish to form a new denomination. And it asks a Council of Bishops to call what would be the first post-separation United Methodist Church General Conference to consider any further organizational factors. It is expected that the post-separation UMC would also use that first general conference to repeal the traditional plan that was voted on last year. That's the agreement. In the end, we would have at least one new Methodist denomination, one that would continue the traditional plan and its ban on same-sex marriage and LGBTQ clergy, The post-separation UMC would likely repeal that plan and would move forward with the name, the cross and flame, and the agencies of the United Methodist Church. Just a personal note here, as a lifelong United Methodist, a a split in the church saddens me more than any words can say. But at least this agreement, if passed, would settle an argument that's been dividing us for decades. This promise is to be a painful time for the Methodist movement, and it won't be over soon given all the deadlines that stretch out to 2024. I can't tell you for sure what everything will look like when all is said and done. But I can ask all those who are listening to take a moment and pray for our church, to pray for our sisters and brothers in Christ who will face some very difficult decisions in the coming days, weeks, and years. As we learn more about these proposals and as we move to the General Conference this year, we'll be bringing you more about this important subject. In the meantime, we will also be bringing you some more historical context. Upcoming episodes of The Untidy Methodist will include past church trials and critical judicial council decisions. And we hope to interview people who may have some additional insight into what's going on in the United Methodist Church today. Until we meet again, thanks for listening to The Untidy Methodist. The Untidy Methodist is written and produced by Ed Garrett. Your questions and comments are welcome. Please be sure to like and subscribe. Thanks.